I invite you to open your Bible with me tonight to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 13. We're going to begin a, a new series tonight uh, looking at uh, the life of Samson. And uh, it's a fascinating story. I'm very excited uh, about uh, this, this short series. It uh, should take us up to about Christmas time. But it's a wonderful, wonderful um, illustration of the grace and the love and the power of God, uh, particularly revealed through a very uh, weak, flawed, uh, sinful man. Just a note, uh, so when we read about the judges, we're not reading about, when you hear the word judge, don't think about a guy in a black robe sitting behind a bench uh, pounding his gavel. That's not what the word means in the book of Judges. Uh, these are leaders. These are deliverers um, uh, who uh, God sends and they, uh, they rescue uh, God's people by using military victory and then they rule over uh, the, the nation for a period of time. And so uh, in the book of Judges, there are, uh, there are 12 judges. Samson, uh, the six major judges, six minor. Samson is the, the, the last judge that we'll read about, and we'll talk about that in the message. But we're going to read um, chapter 13 in its entirety. Let's give our attention to God's Word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he, he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful, that she may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I have commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that when your words come true we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? 
So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offerings and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh, Father, we thank you for this word that you've given to us tonight. We thank you, oh Lord, for uh, the messages that you have for us in it, and I pray that uh, tonight, you, uh, Lord, give us ears to hear it. We, we thank you that you are the God who saves your people and in the most miraculous ways. And, and so, Lord, give us that comfort tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you know uh, anything about the Old Testament, you know that Samson is one of the most intriguing um, figures in the Bible. He is, he is truly a riddle, and uh, he enjoys riddles, and so it, it's fitting for him. Uh, we're not quite sure what to make of him. Uh, I remember uh, Dr. Godfrey, my uh, former um, professor and a longtime president at Westminster Seminary in California, he, he tells the story of going to the opera in San Diego to see uh, Sanson's uh, opera, Samson and Delilah. And uh, the director of the opera had asked the local leading, the leading rabbi, a Jewish rabbi in San Diego, to uh, write a little description, um, sort of introducing the story of Samson and Delilah, and they, and they put that in the program. So Dr. Godfrey's in there and, and waiting for the opera to begin, and he's reading um, this uh, little introduction that the rabbi had written. And, and uh, the rabbi said in that introduction that the uh, story of Samson is never ever read in the synagogue. Uh, that it's it's really not seen as fit reading uh, for the synagogue because Samson is is not regarded as a righteous man. Uh, he his story is is not morally inspiring. Uh, Samson is of course a moral failure, isn't he? And we'll see that as we go through the story. Uh, his there's very few lessons you could say, you, you, you would uh, seldom find yourself in a position to say to your children, just be like Samson. It's not a, it's not a, a story for right, inspiring moral behavior. Um, but Godfrey says, I was fascinated by the rabbi's comments in light of the fact that Samson is listed in Hebrews 11 as part of the hall of faith. He's, right, he's there right along David and, and, and Samuel. There's, there's Samson right there along with him. So how, what do we make of this character? Hey, just as an aside, it's a reminder to us that Old Testament stories are not primarily meant to be um, used for moral examples that we're supposed to emulate, right? Um, in, in an important sense, the story of Samson isn't really about Samson, there's much more going on here than just the recounting of the triumphs and travails of an individual. Uh, you see, it, it's, it's helpful to remember that Judges is a book of prophecy. I, I know that, that um, 
you maybe haven't thought of it that way before. We, we tend to read Judges and, and Joshua and, and First and Second Kings, etc. Um, as historical narrative, just telling a story. But in the Hebrew Bible, uh, these books were called prophecy. They were called the former prophets, and the latter prophets are the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets through to the end of our Old Testament. Uh, these are the former prophets, and, and the, the point of that, you see, is that this is not just a recounting of history, this is a very carefully constructed retelling of history in order to um, teach a message, in order to um, prophesy, to, to give a message from God. And we'll see that as we go through uh, the story of, of Samson. Uh, God is telling us something important through this story about what he's like and his saving purposes for his people. Just, again, one of the interesting things about the book of Judges is that, uh, as I said before, there are 12 judges and um, six major judges and six minor judges that we don't really know much at all about, just we're given their names. But the major ones, you know, Othniel and, and uh, Gideon and Deborah, um, Jephthah you've heard of before, and, uh, and Samson. So there, there are six major uh, Judges, But one of the things that you'll notice in the book is that there is a sort of a declining scale of, of moral integrity. So you begin with Othniel. He's a very, very good judge. He's the son-in-law of Caleb. Uh, one of the, right, Joshua and Caleb, you remember those men. And, and so Othniel's very strong. Deborah, very, very strong. Woman of incredible integrity. Um, Gideon begins strong, and then we... He drifts off as at the end of his life, he starts worshiping idols. Jephthah, by the time you get to Jephthah, um, well, he's the son of a prostitute. Not good. And his life ends tragically when he sacrifices his own daughter, his only daughter, his only child, because of a vow, a foolish vow that he had made. And so Jephthah ends up childless. Surely not a good sign when um, childlessness is considered a judgment from God. And then we come to Samson, and Samson is a moral train wreck. Uh, his life is, there, there's, it's, it's in a sense a, a sh wreckage, shambles, um, and yet God has a story and, and a message for us in the life of Sam, Sam, Samson. You see, the, the author is, is highlighting uh, not just individuals in, in this trajectory of decline, but he's highlighting the trajectory of Israel as a nation itself. We're going to see that Samson is, is a picture of Israel in all of its ugly truth, and that in his, his struggles and his failures, we're going to see Israel's struggles and failures. But he's not just uh, a picture of Israel. He's, he's going to point us to a coming judge, a coming deliverer, Someone who's going to rescue God's people in the most ultimate way. We're going to find uh, things that are pointing us to our Lord Jesus himself. Well, let's, let's jump into the story. Well, just first to set the historical context. So the book of Judges takes place between the death of Joshua and then the beginning of the reign of King Saul. So the first king of Israel. It's a period of about 300 years. It's a period of uh, God ruling over Israel through these men and women who he rises up to be judges. But we need to understand maybe the religious context. That's the most important context. They're in the land of promise, Israel is. They, they, God has been faithful. 
uh, to the promise he made to Abraham. And now there they are in the land. The, 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 nation, the, the enemies have been driven out, or at least are in the process of being driven out. And uh, now they're called to live in God's holy land as God's holy people. That's Israel's calling. They're to be separate from all the nations around them. They're to be a light in the midst of a dark world, uh, pointing to the goodness and the glory and the power and faithfulness of their God. That's Israel's calling. And they go off the track almost immediately. If you have your Bible, maybe turn to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. We see that Israel quickly forgot about their calling. And they quickly uh, began to assimilate with the pagan nations and their pagan religions. Look at Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to begin at verse 8. Joshua has gathered all the people together. Verse 8, we read now, uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Haraz, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. That's a tragic sentence. Something has happened. There's been a failure to pass on the faith to the next generation. And so a generation rises up and they don't know the Lord. They don't love the Lord. They don't know the work that he had done for Israel. It's astonishing. And the people, what follows next, it makes perfect sense. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Does that sound familiar? We're going to see that in Samson's own life. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And so you find in the book of Judges this repeated pattern. Uh, the people would, um, they'd be under a good judge, and he would die, or she would die, and then they would drift off into apostasy and pagan religion, and then God would allow them to be plundered and oppressed. Um, at the, so, so it's apostasy, oppression, then they would cry out for deliverance, and so there'll be a repeated phrase in the book of Judges, then they cried out to the Lord their God, and he sent to them, uh, or raised up, a man to deliver them. And so that's the process. Uh, it's apostasy, oppression, cry out to the Lord, and God raises up a judge. And that happens over and over in the book of Judges. And so uh, when the Hebrew, in, in uh, chapter 13, in the Hebrew, the first word in the sentence is, again. Again, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We've been here before, and now we're here again. And so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. In a sense, they're back in the wilderness, back where they started. But once again, God is going to raise up a judge, but he's going to be a unique judge, Samson. He has a unique beginning. One of the things that you, you'll notice in uh, 
chapter 13, if you've read through the book, is what's not there. There's a, there's a glaring omission. Um, the pattern, remember, was apostasy, oppression, cry out to the Lord, deliverance. Well, uh, there's no evidence of step number three here. There's, there's no remark about Israel crying out to the Lord. There's no evidence that they're repenting or that they're seeking God's help in any way. <clears throat> the story gives the clear impression that Israel has made peace with its bondage. They've accepted the rule of the Philistines. It's been 40 years. It is the new normal. This is just the way life is. And they're getting on with life. They've made peace with it. In fact, in, in chapter 15, when, when Samson first begins to initiate conflict with the Philistines, uh, the Israelites come to him and say, what are you doing? Stop. Don't you know that, that the Philistines rule over us? And the Israelites bound up Samson and handed him over to the, to the Philistines. They've made peace with their bondage. It's okay. They've learned how to get along. Well, if the people aren't repenting, if they're not, if they're not even looking for God's help, well, why is God sending a deliverer? Why doesn't he just leave them be? And the answer, of course, is because God is a God who always keeps covenant. God is faithful to his word, even if Israel is faithless to theirs. God had purposed to make Israel his own possession and uh, to be there among all the nations of the world. And even if Israel is comfortable with their demise as a nation, because that's what's happening, they're about to go, the light of Israel is about to go out. But if Israel is comfortable with that, God himself is not. His purpose in election is going to stand. We just need to see that, that behind the scenes is the mighty, unwavering purpose of God. And in the story of Samson, we're going to see then that God moves into the affairs of his people with beautiful, sovereign grace. They're not even asking for it. They're not even looking for it. They've made peace with it. They have their bales. They have their ashtaroths. They seem to get along with their, with their uh, rulers over them. Uh, but God is going to engage because he's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And he's, he, he's, going, to, he's going to deliver them even when they're not looking. I just, I just love that truth about God. And so Samson is going to be a story as uh, improbable as it would seem. Samson's going to be a story of sovereign grace. There's a special announcement uh, that we have in verse 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and, and gives her this great news. Uh, you are barren, have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Uh, there's an echo here of announcement that will be made um, a thousand or so years from now uh, to a young virgin in the, in the country of Galilee. Uh, you will conceive and bear a son. There, there are echoes here of, of God's great plan of redemption. Um, one of the interesting things through the Old Testament is with this repeated pattern of God raising up deliverers through barren women. Uh, God's purposes happen over and over again uh, through barrenness. So if you think of Sarah, Abraham's wife, and, and her little son Isaac, and Rachel, uh, who has Joseph, who rules uh, and blesses God's people as, the, as a ruler in Egypt. Hannah um, is um, barren and yet receives the blessing of little Samuel. Elizabeth is barren and, uh, and receives John the Baptist. Why, why does God keep doing that? It's not an accident. 
Uh, What's that about? Well, I think the answer in part at least is that God wants us to know that salvation is not by human effort, not by the will of man, not by uh, might, not by flesh, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Salvation is all of God, and, and we find that here again as well. There's a unique call given to uh, Samson's mother, verse 4 and 5. Uh, you should be careful and drink no strong wine or drink. Eat nothing unclean, for you shall conceive a bare son. And, and the point is that uh, this little child is going to be a Nazarite. That just means, the word Nazar means uh, to separate, set apart. Uh, a, a Nazarite was someone who made a vow of total dedication to God. And, and in Numbers chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, you can read about um, what was required when you made that vow. You weren't allowed to, to uh, drink any strong drink. You weren't even allowed to eat a grape. Uh, so you, you, you removed yourself completely from fermented drinks. Um, you were not allowed to touch a dead body. And you were not allowed to cut your hair. For, the, for whatever time you had vowed to the Lord to be consecrated wholly to Him, you would not do any of those things. When, you, you'll find there in Numbers 6, at the end of the vow, then you would cut your hair and you would burn it on the altar. Uh, the, the hair is going to be a big deal in, in the book of uh, the, the story of Samson. And, of course, the, uh, as God here um, speaks to Manoah's wife, the consecration of Samson's life begins at conception. He's not going to make this decision himself. God's going to make the decision for him. This young man, from his conception to his death, is a Nazarite. And so here we have a, a, a Nazarite embryo, completely consecrated to the Lord, which is why mom is not allowed to eat strong drink. It's not for her health. It's for Samson's consecration. And no razors to touch his head. And we're going to see as we go through the story, you see, it's the holiness that matters. Um, there, as long as Samson is living consecrated to the Lord and fulfilling these vows and, and, and keeping the vows, as long as he's consecrated, he's got incredible strength, superhuman strength. Uh, it's not the hair that gives him the power. It's the holiness that gives him the power. And as soon as he breaks the vow, as soon as he wanders off and is not consecrated to the Lord, his life is going to be defined by weakness and bondage. He's a living illustration of Israel. That's the calling on his life. You'll see this in other prophets where they're asked to do things that just uh, picture in, in, right, in uh, time and space, picture what God is doing or what, what, uh, how God sees Israel himself. Hosea is a great example of that. So that's Samson's calling. And that was Israel's failure as well, or calling as well. Israel was called to be a holy people set apart to God. And when they lived in that holiness, they defeated mighty enemies. Uh, they, they were blessed with superhuman ability. And when they broke those vows, refused to be dedicated, devoted to the Lord, well, they were defined by weakness and oppression. The story uh, ends with a, a wondrous revelation. Uh, one of the most intriguing parts of the story of Samson is the amount of space and time given to the record of his birth. Uh, it, it's, it's, there's nothing like it in the rest of the book of Judges. 25% of the story is devoted to this uh, portion right here. Why does the author spend so much time talking about uh, his parents? Um, well, if you read through the chapter, the chapter, you'll notice that the figure that is meant to grab our attention isn't Manoah or his wife, it's this man of God. 
The messenger is the one who gets the attention. And he appears to Manoah's wife. Again, we don't have any record of her asking. Um, she's maybe made peace with her barrenness. And yet he appears and gives this completely unexpected and incredibly thrilling announcement, you're going to have a son. Not just a child, but a son, a son who's going to begin to deliver Israel. This has messianic tones to it. It's an incredible announcement. But notice when she goes back to her husband, she doesn't say what you would expect her to say. I I would think that a woman who's just received that kind of announcement would run back home and say, honey, we're going to have a baby. It's going to be a son. Maybe, Maybe the Messiah. It's not what she first says. What she first says is, I met a man of God and he was... Well, he was awesome. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name. Um, he's a man of God. So he, this wasn't an angel, boys and girls. You couldn't, there's no wings. He looks, he's just a man. He looks like a man. But there's something about him that this, this mysterium tremendum, uh, uh, this, this mystery, this Something that's awe-inspiring, terrifying. The appearance is what grabs her attention. And so when she goes to her husband, it's the first thing she mentions. Well, Manoah prays that the the man will come back. uh, So that, uh, Lord, tell us, have him come back and tell us what to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and he sends the messenger back. And the messenger says basically exactly the same thing, same thing he said the first time. It's as if God is saying, I, I, I told you what you needed to know the first time. I'll, I'll say it again, but it's, it's the exact same message. But again, we find this wonderful mysteriousness about this man. So when Manoah says, tell me your name, he doesn't tell him his name. He says, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Um, his name isn't wonderful. Um, the, the, the idea is that uh, his name is too, it's too profound, too deep, too high to grasp. So it's the same word you find in Psalm 139, verse 6, where the psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's, it's too much. And, and the man is saying, I, the, my name is, is too high for you. It's too profound. It's, it's too much. You wouldn't be able to, to grasp it. And so he doesn't tell him his name. But he gives a, a, a hint as to who he is. And, and that hint becomes sealed in truth in what happens next. As, as Manoah, at the invitation of the, of the, of the angel, the Lord, uh, offers a sacrifice, a, a, a ram and, and a peace offering, burnt offering. And, and when the flames go up, the man ascends in the flame. Boys and girls, I just want you to imagine you're standing around a campfire and, um, and there's a man standing there in the campfire and suddenly he just ascends in the flame, in the smoke, and is gone. That would be a little terrifying. What in the world just happened? And, and Manoah and his wife uh, suddenly know 
They have been in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Notice they say this is the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord. This is the Lord. Uh, Manoah says, we're going to die. I know we're going to die because we have been in the presence of God. We have seen God. He's convinced that they're going to die. And so we have this, this fascinating conversation that happens between Manoah and his wife. Why is Manoah so confident they're going to die? Well, because God is holy, and they surely sense that holiness, and, and man is sinful. And man deserves to die, and, and, and all of Israel knows this to be true. They do deserve the judgment of God. Uh, people know this in, instinctually, right? That's why in the Bible, uh, when, whenever God shows up, he never asks people to kneel. They're already on their face when they see the truth about who he is and, and are exposed for who they are. That's why people in the world today have a sense. Very few people are looking forward to Jesus returning in the general community. Because if it, there, there, there's this heart concern that, that it's not going to go well. Well, that, that's where Manoah's at. But notice his wife's response. It's just, it's perfect logic. I can't help but think of the couple in Fiddlers on the Roof and just sort of hearing uh, her response to her husband. Just, Manoah, what are you thinking? If he had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted the offering or announced to us such things as these. It's perfect logic. He, if he wanted to kill us, he would have killed us. But he didn't. He was right here, but he didn't. He accepted the offering, and he showed us these wonderful things. So what's the point? What's the prophecy? What's the message that God intends in this story for the people in Samson's day? Well, it's a message about the purposes of God, isn't it? That, that um, God, in spite of Israel's sin, was not going to, was not going to destroy them for their sin. That... that um, God was going to come near, but not in judgment. God had come near in this angel of the Lord to rescue them, not to condemn them. God had come near because his steadfast love had not failed, and God had not abandoned them, but was committed still to his saving purposes. It's a wonderful message for a people that had given up hope. And it's a message about God's salvation. By by saving them through an utterly flawed man like Samson, God is showing in the most flagrant way that salvation will not be by human merit, which is good news for Israel because they don't have any. It has to be all of grace. Godfrey makes the point that he thinks this is exactly why Samson is in the hall of faith because there's nothing about Samson's life that you would point to and say, oh yeah, I can see why, why he's there. The only reason he's there is because of the grace of God, the grace that uh, could reach a loser like Samson, a failure like Samson, and yet Samson, by the grace of God, was a believer and died a believer. Well, what's the message for 21st century Christians? Well, it's a very similar message. It's a message of great comfort to us. Uh, Maybe you're a Christian who has made peace with your bondage. You've just accepted that the addiction is not going to go away. Uh, the sin in your heart is just there, and, and um, you've given up hope. You still go through the motions, but, but your life is robbed of joy and peace. Uh, you fear the day uh, when Christ returns because you're stuck in your sin. And, and this is a wonderful message that reminds us that God never gives up on his saving purposes. 
God never gives up, right? The work that he begins, he carries on to completion uh, because that's what he's like. It's who he is. Uh, there's, there's a great reminder here that God isn't done with us when we're stuck in our sin. Uh, it's very likely he's just beginning to break us down and to wake us up and, and to t- point us again to our need for Jesus and, and the beauty, the beautiful rescue he's provided for us in Jesus. And that's the second thing. You see, many, many Christians live still in fear of God's judgment. There are many Christians who are not looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? You probably maybe experienced that in your own life. I have. Where in truth, uh, there's a lingering fear. But you see, the, the, the coming... <clears throat> of Jesus Christ into the world should give us the same confidence that Manoah's wife had because you recognize that um, the, the man that they saw was Jesus himself. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate um, manifestation of Jesus. He's the angel of the Lord, the word of God, the logos of God, the messenger of God. And so Jesus came in his pre-incarnate form to Manoah and his wife. And, and yet he did not come to condemn them, did he? He came to, to announce good news and to, and to uh, con- assure them of God's faithfulness and, and love and, and God's promise to deliver them. And, and so the, the confidence that Manoah's wife has is exactly the same that we could have. Notice she points to two reasons for confidence in her, in her response. <clears throat> the first is, if he wanted to kill us, he would have done it. He was right here. Um, we can remember in that, you see, that, that God, if he wanted to destroy the world, he, he could have done it when Jesus came the first time. But, but he didn't. He didn't come near to destroy us. He came to rescue us. In fact, John says, the, the apostle John in John three seventeen, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus said in John 12, 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Do you realize we just need to understand that God's stance towards this lost world today is not a stance of judgment primarily. Um, Judgment will come, but God's stance today is grace. If he wanted to destroy us, he would have. But he's come in Jesus Christ not to judge the world, but to save the world. That's the day in which we live. And so as you go your way, and if if fear comes about the judgment of God, you can remember, well, that doesn't make sense. If he wanted to kill us, he would have killed us. There must be some other motive in the heart of God. Some other desire in the mind of God. And we're told exactly what that is. It is It is a desire to save. That's a wonderful, wonderful um, comfort and encouragement to us. What's the second reason for her assurance? You know what the second reason is? He accepted the offering. If he wanted to kill us, if he was angry with us, he wouldn't have accepted the offering. But he did receive it and ascended up in it. A sweet-smelling aroma before the throne of God. And that's exactly, you see, the, uh, the confidence that we can have. It's why we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This sacrifice has been accepted. God has received it as a sweet-swelling aroma. And, and in receiving the sacrifice on our behalf, we have the assurance that we're forgiven. The assurance that God's love is 
for us, that God is not against us, that God is with us, he has not abandoned us, that God will deliver us. It's just pure logic as we apply the truth of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so, so if you've made peace with your sin tonight or if you're living in fear tonight, would you let God speak to you through his word? This is not just a story. This is God's message for the Israelites in, in, that, in Samson's day, and it's God's message for his people today. God is telling us something in the coming of Jesus Christ. He's telling us about the love of his own heart, the, cons- the concern that he has to rescue us, to save us, and the assurance that in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that is exactly what happens. I just pray tonight that if you've never come to that place of faith, that you would, you would tonight, that you would apply the logic of the gospel to your very own life, and, and you would s- surrender your fears to the Lord, surrender your sin to the Lord, Jesus Christ is able to save even people like us and save us to the uttermost. Let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you for Jesus, that beautiful, precious angel of the Lord who comes to give us this wonderful message of salvation. Father, some of us tonight are in bondage to sin, a relationship we can't let go, an addiction that has control of our life, a bitterness that taints our thoughts and attitudes. Maybe it's just addiction to pride, to self-will, and it's robbing us of our joy. It's robbing us of our strength, our spiritual strength. And Father, maybe we've made peace with that sin and that bondage, and, and I thank you that you send Jesus to break the chains that hold us and set to set the captives free. And, oh God, do that tonight in our own hearts where we are able to understand that in Jesus Christ there's no need for us to continue on in bondage for he has come to defeat and destroy the works of the devil. He has come to truly set us free and that by believing in him, oh God, we can be set free. Lord, some of us are living in fear. We believe in Jesus, but our sins are so great and many and, and it's hard for us to imagine that that your stance towards us would not be condemnation or anger, but to really believe that your stance toward us would be open arms of love in Jesus. Oh God, I just ask you to forgive us for thinking so little of you and and wrongly of you, and that we would, Lord, in the gospel, be able to understand that the smiling face of God is upon us, even in our sin. Because, oh God... While we were yet sinners, you gave your son to die for us. You loved us to that extent, and you love us still. And Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And Father, I, I pray then that we would walk this week in the sunshine of your, of your grace, in the, in the wonderful confidence of your love, and that we would share that message in this day of grace with a lost and ruined world. Oh, Jesus, thank you. And thank you that you're coming again to take us to be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close by singing together, just rejoicing in the grace of our loving Lord, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Let's stand to sing.
Grace that is greater, vastly greater than all of our sin. Go in the grace and the peace of that word, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you all till Christ come again. Amen. Thank you.